coming up on Economics Explored. We're not trying to pay people based on their negotiation skills. As economists, we would try to pay for their productivity, right? Yes. Who's more talented for ability, for success and performance on the job. And so if you try to do that, then making pay less dependent on negotiation skills is actually maybe a good thing. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Jean Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 107 on gender differences in negotiation. My guest this episode is Dr. Maria Ricalde, an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Melbourne. Her main fields of interest are experimental and behavioural economics, public economics and economic development. Maria has a PhD in economics from the University of Pittsburgh and she's been published in leading publications such as the American Economic Review and the Journal of Public Economics. Please check out the show notes for links to materials mentioned in this episode, including to an NBER working paper on gender differences in negotiation co-authored by Maria. In the show notes, I've also included some links relevant to last week's episode on COVID lockdowns and vaccine mandates. One listener got in touch to say that uh, he thought that in his view, the impact on the healthcare system in the US is much greater than may have been suggested in that episode. So uh, I've included links to stories regarding the strain on the healthcare system and the lack of ICU beds in some regions. So please check those out. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions relating to this episode or to previous episodes, then please send them to contact at economicsexplored.com. I'd love to hear from you. Righto, now for my conversation with Dr. Maria Riquelde on gender differences in negotiation. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Maria Riquelde from the University of Melbourne. Thanks for appearing on the program. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this podcast. Oh, yes, it's good to have you on, Maria. I'm keen to speak with you about this issue. I've previously had Leonora Reese from RMIT on the show, and we spoke about the gender pay gap and what are the different factors explaining that. And it came up in that conversation that one of the factors was just differences in negotiating style or, or, or perhaps a greater willingness of men to negotiate than women. So I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. That's not something that occurred to me before. And I've discovered recently that there is a field of research on this issue, and you've been an important researcher in this field. And last year in December, you had published in the prestigious NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, working paper series, a working paper that you co-authored, Gender Differences in Negotiation and Policy for Improvement, which I'll link to in the show notes. Now, the first question I'd like to ask is, what are the differences between how and when, I suppose, men and women negotiate? Is there a way of characterizing that, please? Yes. So I'd be happy to talk about this article and to try to answer your question. (laughs) So what we do in this working paper is essentially review the literature on gender differences in negotiation. But not not only do we try to summarize what we know, 
try to interpret it in, in from the perspective of, okay, what does this suggest about the policies we can implement to try to reduce the gap? And thinking about why would we want to reduce the gap? Why is that good for society overall and, and for organizations and for the economy? And so we start that working paper with sort of noticing or summarizing what the literature has found when it investigates what we call the propensity to initiate negotiations. So whether or not you ask for higher pay, but also uh, the ability to negotiate. That is, how do you perform conditional on negotiating? And what the literature shows is that gender differences in, in negotiation do emerge, and they tend to emerge in environments that are stereotypically male, when people are negotiating for higher pay on behalf of themselves, for example, which is what uh, you're looking at in terms of the labor market, but it could also be negotiating for promotions, right? Asking for better tasks or competitive positions. And they tend to appear so in stereotypically male environments that violate gender norms when it's unclear what can be negotiated and what the pay range, for example, is. If there's any doubt on whether or not you can ask for something, women tend to be less likely to ask. And it's not that women are bad at negotiating, okay? You, mm. We tend to be just as good as men when negotiating on behalf of others. It's when we have to ask for ourselves and violate that gender norm that exists that the differences seem to emerge. It mostly appears in terms of the likelihood of, of initiating, of starting that negotiation, less so in terms of the outcomes people secure if they're forced to negotiate or once they start negotiating. Okay, that's an important distinction. That that's interesting. Uh, so it's about the propensity to initiate the negotiation. So men may be more likely to initiate that negotiation, whereas women may not realise this is up for negotiation. You talked about stereotypical male fields. Which fields do you have in mind? Do you have things like finance or professional services, the law, accounting? There's some research looking at industries and what industries give rise to gender differences in pay, for example, and they tend to be the industries in which there's room for negotiation. But in the more controlled environments that look at gender differences in negotiation, what, what they change is, say, the domain or environment that you're negotiating in. So is it for a purchase of a motorcycle or a okay. vehicle? So the beauty of, of experiments in many ways in this controlled environment is that you can shut down a lot of the other channels that exist in the field. But of course, they don't necessarily map out onto what you care about in the real world and the actual labor market. Right. Okay. Okay. So in your paper, in the abstract, you've written, men more than women succeed when negotiating over labor market outcomes and gender differences in negotiation likely contribute to the gender wage gap and to horizontal and vertical segregation in the labour market. I've been meaning to ask, what do you mean by horizontal and vertical segregation? So horizontal segregation in the labour market, in terms of gender, captures this idea that men and women select into different types of industries and jobs and, and occupations, right? So this is where your previous question sort of okay. matches to this is men may be more likely to select into uh, finance and, and science yep. and STEM fields and, and women maybe are selecting into education or nursing or other types of fields. So that's how captures horizontal segregation and it emerges even in what we study, not only in university, but even prior to that. What we refer to in economics is vertical segregation captures the difference in advancement that exists 
uh, within industry or within firm even. And this is what I've studied through my research, not necessarily directly, but indirectly. And so when we look up the ladder in organizations, we see that there are fewer and fewer women. Yes. In a field that's majority men, like economics or like finance. Yes, there are fewer women at the beginning, but even as a proportion of the number of women that start their careers there, we see that they start to disappear as we look up. And so the question that a lot of the literature has asked is, is why do we see women sort of not being represented up the ladder in organizations and in society in general? Right. Okay. And do you have any feel or any idea of what's the contribution of this difference in the willingness to to initiate negotiations, do you have a feel for how substantial this is, how substantial a contribution it does make to the gender pay gap and to this segregation that we see? It's hard to quantify. So uh, what has happened in the literature is that differences in psychological attributes and preferences have been sort of bundled together and they have been argued to explain part of the gender differences in advancement directly, but a lot of times through the resist, like the unexplained gap. And it's not a huge proportion, but it seems to be important. More recently, papers have actually started to quantify, you know, how differences in asking for pay, for example, can contribute to the gender gap in advancement or just legislation and how much of that. So the reason they contribute to pay is that, of course, the higher you rank in an organization, the more you earn. And so, therefore, that is captured at the aggregate level in terms of differences in pay. But I don't have a magic number to give you, but there's this idea that it should contribute directly and indirectly in many ways if the propensity to negotiate not only affects the pay you get, but the opportunities you get in an organization, the types of tasks you get assigned to, the types of skills you develop. And so a lot of the things that may indirectly capture the skills that you acquire in the labor force and therefore how qualified you are to move up. Okay. Okay. I'll have a look for some of those studies and I might link to them in the show notes. It it is of great interest just what is driving that gender pay gap. It's something that I've always tried to sort of uh, keep an eye on. I'm just interested in this distinction you made early on between the propensity to initiate negotiation versus ability in negotiation. How is it possible to distinguish between those? Was this done in a study of yours, Maria, that you looked at these different uh, aspects of it? I've done a literature review on this. Okay. I haven't actually sure. really done a study on, on negotiation, but it's it's similar to what happens when we look at employment, right? Okay. So we can look at participation in the labor force and the probability to be employed versus how many hours you work. And so it's a natural question to ask. A lot of the times, especially with the, this literature started with one of my co-authors work, Linda Babcock, when she noticed that her students were just much less likely to even ask for okay. a, a salary other than the one that they were offered. And so the question was for her and her co-author, so why are women not asking? Should they be asking more? And I think an important point that I haven't made already is that, you know, it's not that women are asking less because they want to be paid less. It's likely a function of the environment in which we work, where, you know, a woman who asks for more or who behaves like a man will not be treated the same way, right? So we seem to anticipate differential treatment. We seem to, this can have costs in terms of, you know, how you're perceived by your colleagues. 
uh, whether or not you're you're receive further opportunities in the organization. Uh, are you considered to be a team player? And so we yeah. anticipate this different sort of benchmark and therefore react to it and are much more hesitant to to sort of ask for these big pay raises and these promotions than men. Gotcha. Yeah. I think I chatted about this with Leonora, and I think the way Leonora may have described it was that men who are aggressive and want to get ahead, they're seen as, oh, they're ambitious and that's a positive thing. Whereas if it's a woman, they could be seen as being pushy or, yes, yeah. So that's exactly that. Yes, uh, yes. Or bossy or something pejorative uh, label. So, yes. Uh, so your colleague, Linda Babcock, was it? I've noticed in the references. So she wrote a, is it a book or a, a working paper? Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide. I'll have to look that up. That looks interesting. It's a very influential book. Okay. Um, I think people should read it. I re- read it when I was going on the the job market as an economist. And she's really shaped this, this field. Um, she's a, an important behavioral economist, but also this is a field where we, it's not only economics that has paid attention to it. It's also organizational behavior and psychology. And so it's an interdisciplinary field. And I think there's a lot to learn from this multifaceted sort of view of what's driving the differences. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is I'm trying to bring in other perspectives. And I have been chatting with, uh, well, I've chatted with psychologists, I've chatted with people who are behavioral economists. So um, you're very, uh, very open to that. Now, what I'd like to do now is I'd like to talk about policy for improvement. And what I like in, in this working paper is you've nicely distinguished the different types of approaches that could be taken So I'll continue with the abstract. We review the evidence on the many initiatives that have been put in place to reduce the effect of gender differences in negotiation, categorising these as either fix the women or fix the institution's initiatives. We find serious challenges to the former. Okay, could you explain what the difference between fix the women and fix the institution's initiatives are, please, Maria? There are essentially two types of approaches the literature has has used to classify the types of policies and initiatives we might want to implement to try to reduce gender differences in pay that are driven by gender differences and negotiations. So what we call fix the women initiatives are those that are essentially encouraging women to behave more like men in the workplace. So this can be um, what the literature and Sheryl Sandberg has coined uh, lean in. So this idea that women should sit at the table, ask for the things that they need, they want to speak up and, you know, just be more assertive and behave a little bit more like men. And this has even pushed a lot of people to say women should be negotiating more. They should just be asking for what they want. It's, It's essentially as if it's unfortunately been taken as if it's women's fault that they're paid less. I think along these lines, you also see a lot of initiatives trying to train women to become better negotiators, to be more comfortable negotiating Mm. with the idea that negotiation training will make you better able to ask for higher pay and the opportunities that uh, you may need or want in an organization. However, these types of initiatives... You know, you can make women behave more like men, but if they're treated differently, they're not going to have the same outcomes, right, necessarily. And so there's reason to be worried about it. What we call fixed institution initiatives are policies 
or solutions that have been trying to change the environment that give rise to the gender differences. So some have tried to, for example, they've implemented salary history bans. So by law, employers are no longer able to ask how much you're earning or what were you earning on your previous job. And so the idea behind these initiatives is you cut this path dependency mm. of, of wages. And this need not only benefit women, right? It could be benefit any other group that receives lower wages on average. There's also initiatives trying to ban negotiation altogether. And what we think is promising are initiatives trying to essentially provide more information, make pay ranges more transparent and sort of giving men and women similar information so that they can set similar targets, have equal information, because controlled studies that look at this show that once women know what's negotiable, what the pay range is, and what even when they set similar goals as men, there are no differences, right? So it's taking that idea and that insight to the field to try to increase transparency and not at the individual level in a company, right? But in an anonymous level within uh, an occupation or a scale or a position so that people have similar information when they negotiate for pay. Okay. I'll have to ask about this uh, ban of asking for salary history or actually banning negotiation. Is this, has this been implemented anywhere? Are there examples, real-life examples of this? Yeah, this was a famous uh, initiative taken by, oh, I forget what company, uh, some famous company. Was it Reddit? Yes, yep. I think so, in 2015. Yes, yes. So they banned negotiations altogether with the idea that is what gives rise to the different in pay. Now, but what you may worry with banning negotiation is that if you have very talented people in your organization who've really made it, who have outside offers and they can't negotiate, maybe they're going to be willing to walk away. And you don't want to, as an employer, you don't want to miss out on talent because you're mm. not willing to be flexible, right? So in our overview, we, we questioned how sustainable this may be in the long run. And we sort of argue that Perhaps banning negotiation is useful at the entry level when you have people with similar CVs and qualifications and the information that you have is, is similar, but then you may want to give some room higher up, right, at the ladder or in special circumstances, especially if somebody's approached by another company that is willing to negotiate and you're not willing to negotiate, that you can see how this may not be sustainable in the long run. Oh, yep. But also there's this, there's a recent paper that I was looking at yesterday that looks at legislation changes. It's not quite banning negotiations, but it's looking at the education sector in the U.S. And essentially there's a law change. And before everybody was paid according to schedules and this were wages uh, negotiated by teachers union. After the law change, you could negotiate flexibly. And what you see is that after the law changes, gender differences emerge when they didn't exist to begin with. And they seem to emerge in environments where you have male, I want to say bosses, but it's uh, principals or district uh, officers. It doesn't seem to emerge everywhere, but it's it's similar in, in the sense that it, you have this law change that allows people to negotiate and, and you see the differences emerging there. So it would support this, this type of initiative. Okay, okay. So with the banning of negotiations outright or only with that policy, I, I agree with you that 
or that you have those concerns that this would mean that, well, it may not be in anyone's best, well, it may not be in the best interest of the employers for sure because they could lose talented people. And, uh, I mean, the employees who aren't able to negotiate, some of them, they'll they'll miss out. So, like, as economists, we tend to believe in gains from trade, so we probably would be reluctant to have any policy where we, we banned uh, negotiation. So I can understand that uh now you mentioned previously you support transparency or like is that would that be the best way to avoid this problem and to promote greater like to reduce the gender pay gap to promote transparency in all organizations with i mean what what do we need to be transparent about that there are these the salaries open for negotiation the the terms and conditions this is generally the range we'll negotiate within? Is that what you would think would be beneficial? As of now, that the, this policy is seeking to provide equal information to everybody okay. uh, and to make things transparent are useful. But they're useful not only because they change what information people have, right? Men and women in this case, but also any type of, of group that may be unre- underrepresented and may have less social networks in the firm and may be less likely to acquire this insightful information is going to be benefited by this. But I also think the nice thing about transparency policies or, or say providing information about the mean or median pay in, in a position, for example, is that it also makes it acceptable for people to ask Right. It's, it sort of signals that it's OK to ask. It's OK to negotiate. This is the range. And so it, it not only changes the information women have when they enter, like when they sit at the table, when they start to negotiate, but also perhaps the way they, they are treated. And so uh, some countries in Europe, what has happened is it, companies are required to provide this information in an anonymized way at the position or occupation level. Ensuring that you're not revealing individual identities. Of course, in terms of transparency policies, you may worry that transparency also affects satisfaction and the morale of workers, and maybe it's not a great policy. These are valid concerns. The literature so far, using empirical studies with actual companies and employees, has has not found a negative effect of these policies. The gender gap has reduced. A lot of it has been due to the fact that the wage growth of men slows down, but it's not like it stalls, right? It just slows slightly down and then women catch up and more women are hired. And importantly, what a lot of the literature is trying to do, we're not trying to pay people based on their negotiation skills. As economists, we would try to pay for their productivity, right? Who's more talented for ability for success and performance on the job. And so if you try to do that, then making pay less dependent on negotiation skills is actually maybe a good thing. And so that's why we sort of push towards this, not that push, but in, in our opinion, in the piece, when we conclude, we say that it looks, looks promising. It's also useful because essentially you're providing the information in the same way to everybody and letting people make their own choices and, and companies make their own choices, which is more likely to be embraced by everybody, I think, as an initiative in society, rather than, you know, forcing this, this law changes that, that ban salary histories or ban negotiations altogether, where you may be concerned that only one group of people are going to follow the rules and not others. And so, you know, these things may start to unravel. Mm, yes, good point. It's interesting reading through the 
working paper, just I've been interested in the broad range of techniques that are being used to analyse this issue. And there was a study on the the effect of a negotiation band by uh, your co-author, I think, uh, Lise Vesteland, is it? Uh, uh, there's a study that she was involved in in 2019 where there's a there's an experimental study of a negotiation band. So that sounds fascinating that you can actually test these things with experiments. So a lab experiment. Uh, I've chatted with some other economists about lab experiments they've run and uh, it's fascinating how economists are able to run that those types of studies. And, and also there's been some empirical work done. What I found striking was this study in the States of the salary history ban where they exploited variation in US states that had adopted SHB policy, salary history ban policy. So it looks like that some of the US states have adopted them. And there were studies by Hansen and McNichols and then uh, Sina or Sinha 2019. They found a three to four percentage point reduction in the gender pay gap, which sounds extraordinary to me. I mean, I'll have to look at their study and their methodology, but that that suggests that that policy actually might have, might be quite, you know, extraordinarily effective. Uh, so I'll have to have a, a closer look at that, uh, that salary history ban. But my prior, my, my bias would be in favour of uh, something like transparency, promoting transparency rather than trying to ban things. Uh, and having said that, I will acknowledge that there is that, that interesting finding about salary history bans. Have you looked at those papers recently at all, Maria? Have you any comments on them? These were working papers when we when we reviewed them. They may be published now or be more okay. polished, which would be nice. But essentially, salary history bans are policies that have been exclusively or for the most part implemented in the US. I think the idea behind it is not only to reduce gender differences, but you also have uh, pay differences along you know, minorities and other types of underrepresented groups in society. So the idea behind it is quite nice. We, we were concerned about the potential negatives and mm. how it may unravel, right? If, if I have a great outside option, I may just reveal it voluntarily. And so who's going to follow this in, in the long run? Who's actually going to reveal their salary versus not? And, and the, the empirical studies suggest that, you know, there is a reduction in, in that gap and without a negative effect. It's kind of related to transparency in the sense that once you no longer have this tale of history of whatever you were offered the first time you graduated out of high school or college, mm. once you don't have that chasing you, you may be able to, to break away to negotiate in the same way as men, right? Because you don't have that factor that's going to pull you yes. down. And so I, I see them as kind of complementary, but of mm. course you'd see that there's, it'd be much harder to get people to be okay with standing. Yeah. <laughs> the provision of information. Yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. I mean, you're right. It looks like it was a, a working paper. That Hansen and McNichols paper is information and the persistence of the gender wage gap, early evidence from California's salary history ban. So I'll, I'll have to look into into that to see what's uh, what's been happening in California. I wasn't aware of that. That's uh, that's fascinating. Right. Oh, uh, Maria, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, I think that's been great. I've, I've got a lot out of it. Any Anything we've missed or any uh, any thoughts on where the literature could be progressed? What what additional research needs to be done? The literature is moving in the right direction. It's kind of asking 
what factors are contributing to the gap. It has recognized that there are gains for society, for the economy overall from allowing the most talented individuals and organizations and in society to move up. And so reducing barriers at the educational level and the labor market, trying to quantify how much of the growth, for example, is, is due to misallocation of talent. And so I see this as an exciting field, not only like negotiation, but in general, this labor market questions about gender differences in advancement. There's a lot of really cool empirical work coming up, important questions being studied, I think, within the context of negotiation. It'd be nice to study some of the long-term effects of these policies we've been discussing. Mm. Also, to quantify exactly how much can we gain from, you know, making or encouraging women to negotiate more in, in the workplace. is Are they treated the same or differently? It's harder to get into an organization and a company and quantify the actual. So what you were asking, how much of that advancement rate or pay gap exactly is due to which factor? So it'd be nice to do that more. Yeah, there's also really interesting new developments that has quantified how men and women may be treated differently or evaluated differently in the workplace, in different environments. So I think there's, there's more and more recognition that there are differences that a lot of the times it's not that we want to pay women less or that women want to be paid less. It's just there are a lot of unconscious factors that sort of shape how we behave, what we expect from men versus women. And so therefore, how, especially subjective evaluations are and differences in those evaluations emerge. Yeah, I'm interested in this point you made about there's interesting research on how people are evaluated in the workplace. And it sounds like, I think it was evaluation you talked about, and it sounds like you're talking about something different from just the pay, the, the decisions around pay. It could be the, the a performance evaluation more broadly. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So, for example, to move up the ladder, you may need to be evaluated not only on how many sales and clients do you bring in, but but also on, in academia, it's going to be teaching evaluations. A lot of research has shown that women receive lower evaluations than men on average female professors. It seems to be not because of differences in teaching quality, but because we expect men and women to behave differently. So you may think more or think less of a woman who doesn't give you time and isn't doesn't fit the stereotype of the female stereotype um, than men. This hasn't been quantified in terms of the cost, but this, this difference has emerged. There are other studies, recent studies, looking at in, in field experiments even where you can see discrimination and uh, figure out the source and show how it, it may reverse. So say if you look at IT, a sector where women may be on yeah. average perceived to be, you know, less able or underrepresented, you see a discrimination at the bottom, but as soon as women move up the ladder, you see that they're actually favored because people who recognize that there's a bias against women know that if a woman has made it to the top, she must be very, very good, right? So there's a lot of new research showing these types of differences in, in recognition for group work. In economics, for example, men who co-author papers are not penalized. Women who co-author are. The returns to co-authoring right. are different for men and women. And so these are important papers that have sort of received a lot of attention. It's exciting new fields because they're sort of quantifying a lot of the anecdotal stuff that we've been hearing about for a while. And so I think it's very interesting, of course, I'm biased because I do research in this area, but I think it also shows that a lot of the times 
both men and women are treating men and women differently. And um, it's not because they're anti one gender. It's because we unconsciously behave in a way. And especially uh, when there are information asymmetries where we don't know something, you tend to update beliefs with the information you have. Sometimes we draw on social norms or existing perceived gender differences that may be historical in nature, may even be misperceived, right? May be incorrect. Uh, And so all of these things play out and and you can see them actually affect, um, yeah, the pay and the rewards people get, how they're perceived, yeah, in terms of things that will matter towards advancement. I've also done some work on task allocation. So who ends up performing what type of task? Right. And of course, some, some tasks move you up the ladder and some don't. But if you always ask somebody in your organization to perform tasks that are non-promotable in nature, then of course, you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to recognize talent if they're always stuck doing things that don't count towards promotion. And so there's a lot of little elements that play into this gap in advancement. And the literature is trying more and more to try to unpack these things so that we can understand them. And we can essentially try to eliminate the barriers so that it's not favor one gender, but just eliminate barriers so that the most talented individuals, and it need not be on gender dimensions, can progress. I'll have to have a close look at this because it just occurred to me while you were talking that uh, family roles can play or perceptions of family roles or caring responsibilities can play a role here because it may be that typically you you may have a boss who thinks, oh, well, the man, that's the person we should give this heavy load of responsibility to because they don't have to worry about looking after children or home tasks as much as a woman. And that can be a disadvantage to women too, is it? That would be right, would it? That's has been studied, I think, in the past too, because it's a I think historically it used to be the case that a lot of women wouldn't be hired or promoted because they were expected not to be productive for as long and to be less attached to the labor market, to be less likely to return. So I think that that can play a role. I'm less familiar with and and having kids and, you know, exiting the labor Mm. market after having kids, all of that matters. There's a lot of really interesting work using Scandinavian data. So you look at within a couple uh, wage progression and you see that, husband and wife or, or the two partners of the opposite sex, you know, have ex- the exact same paths until they have kids. And after that, the woman stays home and she earns less forever, mm. never catches up. Right. Even though they had the same, same starting everything. So these things do matter and they matter a lot. Also industry, also all of this standard explanations. There's a lot of these extra features that feed into where do we select in terms of occupation and how quickly we progress that I think the behavioral economics literature in particular has started to study and in and, and the last few decades and has um, opened this black box and, and sort of um, the empirical literature, the microeconometrics literature has also dived into um, more recently. So it's, it's quite new literature, some of this, the latest stuff we were talking about, but it's exciting. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to have to look into it. Uh, and also microeconometrics, that's where you're talking about things like panel data sets like the Hilda survey or panel study of income dynamics in the States and applying statistical techniques to that. Right. Okay. Very good. I better wrap up there. It's been great. That's been uh, fantastic, Maria. I've learned uh, quite a lot and it's made me think more about these issues. So uh, really appreciate uh, your time today. So uh, Dr. 
Maria Ricaldi uh, from uh, the University of Melbourne. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jim. Bye. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.